Hello and welcome to this episode of Unfinished Unpublished. My name's Emily Anderson and my guest today is Brenton Clutterbuck. Brenton is a writer, performance poet and educator from far north Queensland in Australia. His work covers the diverse topics of the underground music scene in Buenos Aires and what he's described as the constructed, chaos-worshipping religion of discordianism. There are links to Brenton's work in the programme notes. Brenton can describe his unfinished project far better than I can, but I'll tell you at this point that he's here to talk about a creative, written response to Kanye West's 2013 album which is entitled Yeezus. I recorded my interview with Brenton before the announcement of West's divorce from Kim Kardashian, so that's why that subject doesn't come up if you were wondering. But we do talk about lots of other things, such as why it's beneficial to write with playfulness, and Brenton also gives a rendition of some of his brilliant performance poetry. I've heard him do that before for a previous series and I promise you it's definitely worth listening to. One final note. Brenton spoke to me from Australia, and actually quite late at night his time, and you'll hear that there are noises of a social life in the background that is allowed in Australia, and frankly I took it as quite a pleasant reminder of what we may be able to do here in the UK sometime soon. All that remains for me to say is that if you have an unfinished or an unpublished project that you'd like to talk about, please email me at unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, which is at True Bagelrag. So I want to start off just by jumping straight into a discussion of your unfinished project. I'm very intrigued by it for lots of reasons, and partly because when you described it to me in an email, you used the terms utterly and ridiculous. Um, So I wondered if you could maybe describe what your unfinished project is and maybe how the idea for it came to you. So how it came to me was I was in a very magical, bizarre headspace and I was travelling the world and I was writing about discordianism, which is a lot of different things, but one thing that it is is a a kind of do-it-yourself religious or spiritual process Mm -hmm. that really encourages people to take a lot of elements and put them together in unique ways. And because of that, it it aligns very well with a lot of modern occult and modern chaos magic in particular, uh, magical traditions, because these are traditions that really encourage people to borrow from all sorts of places. So one of the first pagan religions, for example, um, was the Church of All Worlds, which is uh, borrowing from, you know, a, a tradition of literature. You know, so people take things from computer games, from all sorts of places. And while I was in this very uh, magical headspace, I came across for the first time the whole album of Yeezus, uh, which is the Kanye West album mm-hmm. um, that came out. I guess it would have been uh, probably the year that I heard it, 2013. And I listened to it and I was like, I, I have no idea if I like this or not. This is very different. This is very challenging for me. I listened to it again and I was like, no, I, I love this. This is, this is wonderful. This is fantastic. Okay. And for whatever reason, I kept thinking about that in a really deep and complex way and ended up kind of in my head, in, in my sort of head canon, reinterpreted it as a uh, an occult 
process of self-creation, you know, just to kind of take that Kanye West style energy and bring that into your life, you know, in this kind of, yeah, this, this kind of uh, essentially, um, you know, turning yourself into a god. In, and I guess the more metaphorical sense, in the sort of sense that yeah. um, that what gets called god forms and so on are, are used in these traditions of chaos magic. So that's that's what sort of where it came from, and, and what it is 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 it was a a written project that sort of described the I guess the logic, if you want to call it that, of how this particular album can be used to you know kind of allow for a certain type of occult ritual. Okay, and you've used the term chaos magic in your description of that is that the same thing as this imagined occult ritual i'd say that this ritual you know is is a is a type of a chaos magic process yeah because it's one of those key things with chaos magic is is you sort of abandon this reliance on things like uh you know very particular rules or traditions and so on and you kind of take this very different mentality of well does it work mm-hmm. You take elements based on whether they work or not. It's very syncretic in a lot of ways. It's a lot of do-it-yourself and taking things from one place or another place. And I think it allows for a certain type of very modern magical thought um, because it allows for people to maybe borrow something from um, Alistair Crowley's, uh, you know, uh, Thelema or it allows somebody to borrow something from Wicca without getting caught up in these discussions about authenticity. you kind of don't have to say, well, yes, you know, the stories behind where this comes from. You, you don't have to believe that. Yeah. Uh, maybe you have to believe it in the moment when you're doing a ritual or something, but you can you can just ask yourself a different question, which is, does it work? There's this way of thinking about magic that you can sort of uh, think about everything as not exactly everything is magical, but start to look at things through a a lens of magic, you know, and you can kind of say, for example, that the McDonald's Golden Arches is a, is a very powerful uh, magical symbol because it's, um, you could think about it, if you like, as a, as a sigil, mm-hmm. a symbol that holds a particular magical power. And for a sigil to have power, you need to charge it. You know, there's a whole advertising and public relations apparatus managed by McDonald's that makes sure that it is always charged. So when you do see the golden arches, you don't just, you know, you don't interpret it logically. You don't go, well, I believe that means there's a McDonald's in the area. You know, your brain goes, fun, happy, good. These associations jump out, you know, and it's almost like your brain's been turned against you by this outside force. And if you talk about it in terms of magic, you can say, well, it literally has. You literally have had a spell cast on you by McDonald's. And and this is sort of, you know, one way of taking that same sort of, stuff you know the cultural artifacts the cultural bits and pieces that kind of float around yeah and making use of those in a way that is empowering as opposed to disempowering in a way that turns that I guess that consumerist impulse outwards and takes that the type of energy that you encounter when you get the golden arches that drags you off somewhere and instead turn that type of energy into a productive force that empowers you and and puts that energy emanating outwards from you as a center as opposed to it entering into you and and basically hijacking your your central nervous system and and all of a sudden you know you you're you're in mcdonald's and you're halfway through a burger and you don't know how you got there and you're not really having as much fun fun as you thought you would 
You mentioned there about turning that sort of energy into something positive and empowering. Is that what you mean when you say about turning yourself into a God form? Right, yeah. So um, so I, I, in particular, I encountered a lot of these ideas through a text called The Art of Mimetics, which is a really wonderful piece, which built, it, it itself is an incredibly syncretic piece. It borrows from... It borrows from Deleuze Guattari, it borrows from chaos magic, it borrows from a really broad range of, of sources and kind of seeks to combine memes, magic and marketing um, into this kind of modern occult system. And in there they talk about God forms. And I'd, I'd have to double check it. It may, I think I'm right in saying that they borrowed the concept of God forms from Peter Carroll but not entirely certain. And basically talk about the existence of a larger-than-life entity that you're able to either attach yourself to or emulate or basically take on as a more powerful energy force that, that can operate through you or that you can invite to operate through you. So again, this being a very syncretic, very modern, very um, postmodern perhaps um, type of tradition, obviously Zeus can be a god form and Ares could be a god form. Ronald McDonald could be a, a god form. Mm. Your main characters of Casablanca could be a god form. Somebody like Johnny Depp could be a god form. You know, because even though some of these people are real people, they are your experience of these people is larger than life. Yeah. And I think that in particular in his sort of autobiographical treatment in Yeezus, Kanye absolutely, you know, embodies this kind of beyond life, larger than life you know, hyper-real, God-form-like entity in, in the way that he presents himself in this album. And you described the album just then. You said you found it difficult and challenging. And I know that in a lot of the reviews, which were very positive, there was a lot of focus on how it was maybe quite experimental and quite different. Could you maybe describe the album for anyone who hasn't heard it? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a really to me it was a really interesting album. It's not just a traditional hip hop album. It it is experimental in its approach. I've heard people sort of draw connections to other other bands. Uh, Death Grips is is one I was searching for there in particular. They they've referenced that. It's got a lot of very harsh, um, unpleasant sounds mm. at different points. You know, it suddenly it'll interject from one song with another uh, another sample, another very harsh sound or, or, or a lot of surprises. And, and that kind of makes it a bit of a challenging listen in, in some ways. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's very heavily electronic, I think, compared to a lot of, you know, a lot of what gets associated with Kanye is this kind of feel-good, um, you know, Chicago sample-driven hip-hop music. And whereas this is, you know, really sometimes quite stripped down, quite harsh sounding, um, quite interesting where he does sample, interesting choices. Um, there's kind of a distorted uh, Nina Simone sample in there. So there's a lot of different twists and tones. It's also, and this wasn't really a focus of, of my project, but something I find interesting about it is it's, it's a very black album in the sense of Kanye's guest spots on this album. He takes a lot of artists who come from I think what at the time were kind of fringe uh, musical cultures, at least as far as 
you know, popular Western music was concerned. Um, artists who were, you know, working in um, different sort of uh, Jamaican traditions, for example, and artists, you know, who, who did, you know, um, were not rapping necessarily in, in standard American English. He is addressing a certain type of racial discourse, especially in mm. tracks like uh, Blood on the Leaves, um, where he's sampling Nina Simone, Strange Fruit. Sure. And I, I think that, that the mentality there is, you know, the just as a whole, you know, as a whole album, I, th- I feel like the mentality is very much reminds me of that Frank Zappa quote, you know, not everything you see that's artistic is going to be pleasant to look at it and not everything you hear. You know, some things yeah. are there to, to challenge you and to engage you in a different way. And I, and I think definitely this is an album that makes an, a particular effort to engage um, the listener in a particular yeah. way. And you talked about Kanye as a good example of someone who could be a god form because he has that larger-than-life quality that you were describing. He's also been wrapped up in quite a few controversies. Do you see that controversial side as part of the larger-than-life trait? Yeah, that's, and that's absolutely a major part of it in, in this album in particular. So there's a, there's a particular writer who I was finding out about at the time called Robert Moore, and I've seen these, these ideas pop up in, in various spaces, and, and some of them are more healthy online spaces and some of them are less so, but he very much has these masculine archetypes um, I think there's uh, uh, King, the Warrior, the Magician, the Lover. And he very much has this concept of, you know, where you want to be is the middle of, of three spaces. You sort of have the immature and unformed, and then you have the uh, totalitarian and despotic, and then you have the whatever in their fullness. And to me, the one of the interesting things about this album, speaking of this um these controversies is Kanye really buys into these controversies in, in a really serious way. And you get a lot of these sort of doublings of songs where you get the negative, the two negative extremes that relate to, you know, the, um, the immature and the, the totalitarian. So yeah. um, an example of that really quickly is Hold My Liquor. It's sort of Kanye as, as the lover figure but the immature lover, you know, showing up drunk on somebody's um, front stairs and, and so on and, and, you know, just kind of, you know, being this, you know, this um, unsatisfying lover. And the next one is, is I'm In It, which is a vi- that very sort of sexed up Kanye that, you know, I think you, you've probably heard in a lot of songs, you know, very, yeah. you know, hyper-masculine, very um, sex-obsessed. And kind of it's really interesting that, they, that that middle ground isn't there. So those controversies are there. And to me, it's kind of this very powerful statement of, you, you know what, if people are going to say this about me, uh, you know, then fuck it. It's, it's true. It's all true. You know, everything people say about me, you know, if they say I'm a dud lover, I'm a dud lover. If they say I'm a sex maniac, I'm a sex maniac. It, to me, it was kind of this very interesting capturing of of many of these controversies through the lens of you know I'm not going to fight them in fact I'm going to say that it's true it's all true you know and if, yeah. if two if one person says I'm, I'm God and one person says I'm the devil then they're both right and if one person says I'm a sex fiend and the next says you know I'm impotent then they're both right yeah every outlandish thing you can imagine about me I'm, I'm going to take ownership of that for whatever reason, you know, I, I kind of saw it through that framing and, and, and sort of felt yeah. like, well, that's a really powerful attitude. 
And you said in a message to me as well that you'd forgotten that you'd even started working on it. Can you remember now why it was that you then stopped working on it? I cannot remember why <laughs> why I stopped working on it. Um, yeah. I have to imagine that I got busy with other yeah. stuff. Just thinking about the time frame, this was uh, you know my, that first big project, the one that I was travelling for, uh, chasing us the one about Discordianism. That that took a long time to do a lot with. I, I suspect I kind of started to do this in the gaps. I think sometimes there's a flow with you and sometimes there isn't. And mm. it's one of those things. And I remember the last time we spoke, we spoke about this um, uh, TV show that I'd had an, an awfully hard time actually putting pen to paper about. And, and sometimes there's just things where on paper that flow just doesn't start. It's hard to get into that state. And I never quite got into that flow state. And maybe it always felt like what I was trying to do was go a little bit backwards in my own mind. I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe it. Does that make sense? It was almost like I, I couldn't explode outwards anywhere. It was all, yeah. okay, here's the idea and it's kind of fully formed already. It's like yeah. the thesis statement is, you know, this you know, album is a an occult ritual or, or appropriate for one mm. and then kind of having to justify that as opposed to sort of saying, well, here's, an idea and let's explore this in different directions it just never pulled me into itself in a way that let me just write yeah and I don't know why I don't know why and do you feel okay about leaving a project incomplete or does it bother you if you have something sitting there that hasn't been finished it, it doesn't bother me I I I think not everything has to be complete. And I think that my feeling is, you know, nothing's ever wasted. I, I really do feel like nothing ever gets wasted. Yeah. Most of the time an incomplete idea kind of buzzes around and stays around and eventually if there's anything in it, mm. you know, it will turn into something. Yeah. And I think that's that's through, you know, through editing, through a lot of editing, you know, is is where I've, become very comfortable in that and it's funny because it's you know I when, when I'm not trying to write occult manuals about um hip-hop albums <laughs> you know I'm, I'm teaching English and yeah uh my students you know you, you just see this horror you know at the thought that they would have to cut out a line or a paragraph or a word they really like and they kind of you know yeah. play this very silly game you know they, they're like 300 words over so they're going around and saying oh I can get this word out of this sentence and I can take this word from the fourth paragraph. And I just want to say, I say, you know, don't do it. Like edit with a machete, like cut things out. Yeah. It's like these words came from you. They came from your brain. Your brain keeps producing them. So just throw stuff out, chop stuff out, delete stuff. If it was good, you'll make it again. Yes. You will be able to recreate it. Mm. And, and, that, and that's sort of how I feel. I think that not everything needs to be finished. And, and I know that, very early on, I had two pieces that I was working and reworking and reworking and eventually just said, you know what, I'm going to put them out into the world just to draw a line under them and say that they're done. Yeah. And eventually I deleted them because I just thought that they, they were very immature examples of, you know, what I, I'm, I can do. I don't think that the internet or my work, not meaning to sound pretentious, really deeply importantly gains anything by those things being 
yeah. on the internet. I think, you know, that, that the world hasn't really gained anything because they're not rotting away in a drawer somewhere. I think that, uh, you know, rotting away in a drawer somewhere is quite an appropriate place for some projects to end up. <laughs> and if, yeah. if you come across them, you know, I think the thing to do is to flip through them and go, oh, yeah, that was a good idea. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, I used a good word there and put that into something else instead because it doesn't have to be out there. It's They will tell you not to be too magical about it, but, you know, certainly in a metaphorical sense, they will tell you if they want to enter the world, Mm. you know, and and not everything does. You know, you can write poems for yourself. You can write stories for yourself, you know, like not every dumb picture you take of yourself has to be uploaded to Facebook and not every piece of writing you produce has to be shared with the world. It's okay to do things for you. It's interesting that you say that because, the idea that there is value to be found in writing for yourself is quite a common theme that comes up on this podcast. And I liked what you said about sometimes it's fine to just leave something in a drawer. Could I ask, did you have an audience in mind for this unfinished project that we're talking about or were you doing it more for yourself? Um, that's a, a fantastic question. Um, I, I always write really selfishly. I heard someone in, in Cigaros, um, the band, which is one of my favourite bands, uh, I think Yonsi maybe did, a, did an interview and, and said something, said, you know, we're a very selfish band. We make the music that we would like to listen to. Yeah. I do write to try and appeal to other people, but I definitely write for myself first because I assume that there's another me somewhere who would pick this up and be like, oh, man, I've been – after you know this exact thing like who knew that you know what I really wanted was was a hip-hop occult manual or you know whatever so I, I kind of tried to to start with myself and then build outwards from there so people with a, a general interest in uh, popular culture people with a general interest in esoterica and the occult and um, you know kind of this magical type of space that's the audience. It's, it's always like a version of me, but then kind of made, you know, a little bit broader, a little bit more, more wide. And, and I guess in my head, maybe it's, it's people who are me before I discovered something that I got really excited about, you know, and I'm yeah. writing something that somebody who has my kind of inclinations and interests, you know, who's maybe heard a bit about magic, but hasn't really explored it, you know, doesn't really listen to hip-hop music, could pick up and suddenly say, okay, well, now I didn't realise I could be into this, but now I'm a little bit hooked because now I kind of see what can be done with it. And you do, I think, when possible, perform your work for other people, in particular your poetry, and you've agreed to perform a piece today. Are you up for doing that now? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. This is a... um. So the, the one that I was going to do is, is not at all recent and, and it, it almost feels a little very slightly cringy to me because it, I, I got serious about um, my poetry probably a couple of years, uh, maybe a year or two before I started doing, um, doing a lot more writing and, and not to drag on the, the introduction, but this, at the time, all of my poetry was basically about, hey, isn't it weird that the universe is a an unfathomable place and kind of this is the one where I pushed it to the point of saying okay maybe I need to now write about something else because otherwise I'm just going to (laughs) repeat the same thing in, in more and more obscure ways okay here goes time won't tell if you don't 
Time won't smell, time won't see, time won't tell her anything, deaf, blind, mute like Helen Keller, right down to the communism. Every worker gets a share of this embarrassing lack of intuition, this ineffective, inefficient wreck of indecision with a blurry vision of the future on a mission from God to uh, do the uh, thing uh, that uh, needs to be done. But time won't tell you what that is. Time won't tell, time keeps mum, lips to teeth, teeth to gum, gum to jaw, jaw locked tight, grinding, braces, overbite, unseen smokescreen, oversight, uncertain feeling, stay overnight, it's over, right? No, because when it's over, you'll be just as confused as when it wasn't over. I'm glad I can explain this to you with this degree of clarity, discussing reality can be complex. The object of this lesson is to become comfortable with nonsense or you'll trip up and you'll slip up like the waiter with the frog's legs. Like, because I asked, you know, do, do you have frog's legs? Okay, I, I fucked up the punchline, but I think you get the concept. And if you'll just be patient, I'll come on down in one sec once I've grasped at the relation between the subject and the object. And time won't tell, but I will. I'll echo through the wreck of a crumbling stairwell. I stare well ahead. I'm bred to be careful. Uh, that's a lie. I'm impulsive, a compulsion to be false if the truth hurts. And when you flirt with deception, make sure you take her out to dinner. Just don't expect politeness is enough to end up in her bed. Strung up with sticky ropes of thread and see the tangled web we weave when first we practice to believe. And at this juncture I will receive a choice between God forms and social norms. I wear word forms like uniforms, looking for dreams like straight couples hunting for unicorns. You set the scene for ontological reform, hypothetical reform of the pathological me form. And therefore I care for the anthropological why for and wherefore are the answers that time won't tell. That was great. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Um, so you said in your introduction to that piece that you were writing about the universe being an unfathomable space, but the poems seems to me to be a really fun way of saying that. Do you see kind of fun or humour or in the poem you use the term nonsense as a kind of a good way of expressing that unfathomableness, if that's a word? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's yeah. it's like one of my, you know, there's a lot of different ways of doing poetry. Um, you know, I'm not sort of criticising anyone who has a different style, but something that I don't engage with particularly is when sort of a poet stands up and they start to perform and they say, depression. <laughs> That's fine. It's a certain way of expressing a certain thing, but I don't connect with that personally because it's almost like to me it feels like, you know, you pull your arm back to throw a punch, you know, really clearly and the person that you want to hit is going to duck because they see what you're doing whereas you know you can you can really get away with anything if you make it playful if you make it silly mm. you know if you kind of make it a bit strange and unusual and, and build in some um, unusual metaphors and things like that to me that's I like to speak about you know things that to me are are scary or are important, uh, are difficult, are challenging, um, maybe I find upsetting. Mm. If I want to write about something like that, I will probably try to write it in a way that is a little bit playful, a little bit silly, a little bit lighthearted. But you know that that is hopefully going to work because it has a beating heart. It has a beating heart of of something that, that is genuinely meaningful, mm. is genuinely worth exploring. 
and I don't think that you lose the value of of whatever it is you want to say or want to speak about or engage with by saying it in a way that is you know a little bit unusual or, or playful or whatever you know I think that can be an asset to a certain type of presentation of ideas. And I think you said in one of your messages to me that you wrote the poem around the same time as you were doing the Godform project with Jesus. Are there parallels between the two, do you think? There is in the sense that that they're both very much a reflection of my obsessions at the time. Yeah. You know, which was this very much this exploration of the world and our place in the world and doing so with this kind of occult language and kind of very much being obsessed with this idea of illusion, you know, this kind of this veil of illusion that perhaps things are not quite as as we perceive them. And not so much in a conspiracy type sense, but just in the sense that, you know, one person looks at a looks at a painting and sees one thing and somebody else sees another thing, you know, and yeah. an atheist looks at a church and sees oppression and a Christian looks at a church and sees um, salvation and an architect will see a building and mm. that there are these layers of meaning built over things that are not simply reality itself. It's more complex than that and that truth leads to both opportunities and challenges you know it challenges us because it you know it, it perhaps separates us from people or it leads to these competing narratives um it leaves you open to uh, i guess you know what i would think of in my head as, as this psychic warfare which is you know this barrage of messaging that's that's being imposed on you every day that there is a certain way to think a certain way to be a certain way to mm. act a certain thing that you have to believe but it's also you know a space of opportunity because if you can pierce the veil if you can break through that you know if you can kind of turn around and say okay this thing x is is a lie is a deception is is an illusion what lives on the other side of that you know if i suddenly break out of this this existing model of masculinity of being a man of what being a man means or even that i'm obligated to be a man what opportunities what possibilities lie on the other end of that yeah if we get away from this social idea of work of what work is what work does how work functions and the necessity of work is there something on the other side of that and and, you know honestly it still is you know it it still is an obsession of mine and today I guess I am engaged with that in a in a slightly different way I was really interested then in what you were saying about the nature of work, because that's something that comes up quite a lot. I've spoken to a few people who have placed quite a heavy emphasis on the value to be found in doing activities that are separate from paid work, at least. And I wondered, thinking about that, do you ever experience writing your poetry or writing your other work as work, or do you experience it as kind of something separate from that? No, I, I definitely and, and very consciously um, experience it as as separate. Yeah. You know, again, I, I make a very um, a conscious choice to be selfish in my writing. Every so often I look into, you know, I go to the, the self-publishing Reddit and I go to other, other spaces where people get paid for writing and I like how I get, get paid as a teacher. Yeah. And... My feeling there is why would I 
jump at the opportunity to get paid less for writing in a way where I'm obligated to care deeply about what other people want. You still have to care what people want to an extent, you know, producing something, writing something, if you if you intend for somebody else to see it, is going to be social to a point. You do have to yeah. actually care that at some point somebody else is going to be able to pull value out of it. You can't just write something that is beyond any other person um, understanding it at all um, or, or, you know, or enjoying it at all. You can't just torment people with your – I mean, I suppose you can, but it's not nice to do. <laughs> But yeah, no, no. So, so very much, I it's very consciously separate for me, and I have multiple times, you know, made a a conscious choice with myself to allow myself to be a little less commercial, to be a little less yeah. um, marketable, to not seek opportunities in spaces that would let me compromise. I don't particularly care about the purity of, you know, that, that it has to be, you know, totally pure or whatever, but simply because it's not, I don't want to, I don't want to, and I don't have to do things that I don't want to do when I'm doing my writing. You know, when I go to my paid work, I have certain ways I want to do things. I have to compromise on that vision. That's because, you know, somebody else is making decisions, you know, that, that, you know, goes above me. Um, And that's fine. That's, that's the, the structure of that. But, for it to function as I want it to function and for me to produce the sorts of things I would like to produce, you know, I, I kind of feel like that separation from paid work and work in its existing social significance, there has to be a distinction there. And, and, and I, it's not accidental, you know, it's not like I just think about it now and go, oh, yeah, you know, it, it's something that I very consciously defend, I, I will say. Yeah. <laughs> And because you do make that separation, do you ever find it difficult? I suppose the best way to put it is, do you ever find it difficult with kind of so self-motivation, given that you're not, you haven't got anyone outside your writing telling you you have to do it by a certain point or you have to do it a certain way? I don't think so because okay. I think that the way that I'm wired is I, is I have a certain amount of energy that wants to be uh, applied creatively. and if I stop a project that will usually be because another project has pulled more of my interest in towards it and I'm disciplined enough that I can start something new that's exciting and also finish something old that, you know, wants to be completed. Yeah. Like relaxing, I get in trouble a lot (laughs) when I'm like on a holiday or something. Yeah. I get told off quite frequently because it's like my my dream holiday will be like, you know, we'll go somewhere and I'll have my laptop, <laughs> you know, and we'll go to the beach yeah. and it's like we go to the beach because the beach is a nice place for me to write my stories um, or whatever, you know, but it's, it's yeah. even if it's like relaxing time and, and we go to the beach or whatever, I, I'm going to make a sandcastle. I'm going to try to swim a certain distance the idea that you can lie in the sand and just hang out and that that's fun is very challenging to me I can't I find that very do you know what I mean like I find that difficult you know and and that's part of why I I take on some of the types of projects that I take on with you know interviews and stuff like that yeah it means that I can go somewhere or do something 
because in my head it's like no no I can I can do this and hang out and whatever because I'm going to write about this later or I'm going to use this as material later you know I'm doing something productive yeah. I don't know where that comes from I, I don't even believe in that I don't believe that you know, it, it's like a moral imperative to be productive or to make things or to do yeah. things or whatever. I think that there is absolutely nothing wrong, you know, with with hanging out on the beach and doing nothing. And if you produce nothing for a year, well, guess what? You, you didn't sign a contract when you were born that you were going to <laughs> produce your produce your right to exist. Like, yeah. you know, there's no moral part of me that believes that that's, you know, a good thing to do, like a morally good thing to do. But if I relax for five minutes, my brain gets angry with me and is like, what, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Write something, do something, draw something, go, go, go. <laughs> that sounds quite useful, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is as, as far as, yes, yeah, a certain type of, of creative work is, you know, it, it is a, a good thing in that way, yeah. You sound like there's quite a lot of fun things going on in the background there as well. Yeah, I'm so. Is that is that okay? Is that caused some trouble or? It's fine. I quite like it.